service. Um, I love family service. I, uh, some of you guys know who've heard me speak before, I grew up Catholic. Catholic church has no concept of kids' church. It doesn't exist. There is no kids' church. You go specifically, like, when you go to do your first confession, you go to specific classes. When you um, go, you know, for different things like that, you, you have specific things you go to. But Sunday morning, everybody's just together. And so, like, this is what I grew up with. I grew up with having young people and kids in service with me. And, and I, like, learned to pray. I learned to sing. Um, I did my Catholic calisthenics where you stand and kneel and move and you do all the things. And I think that, like, kind of actually, like, helped me pay attention because I was, like, moving around half the time, you know, doing different things. You go up and do the communion and all the different stuff. Um, but so I love it. Like, for me, it's... Um, I'm, I'm stoked about it. I'm, I have to admit, I'm one of those people. I'm not easily distracted. Like, I can just kind of focus in, and I think that's part of why I do well in school, working at a school, because I'm like, you know, there can be all kinds of insane. I worked special education for like eight years. Um, I know there are a couple others of you who work in that field, and, and like, you know, there could be like chaos just going on all around you, and you're focused in on, okay, we're working on learning our letters, or we're working on this type of skill, or, you know, you like all these things can be going on, and they can literally be somebody over here throwing toys at the window, and you can still stay focused and do your thing. So that's where I come from. So I want to, like, give that caveat that, uh, for me, it's just not an issue. Um, and I realize not everyone else is, is built that way. So I'm just making that observation to you, and so it's okay if you're not used to it, um, give yourself grace and give moms and dads grace, both on, on both sides. Um, I Like I said, for me personally, I love it because it's how I learned to follow Jesus is by watching my parents and watching the people around me follow Jesus. Like it's that modeling thing that we know is so important as parents um, and as adults that I remember Cormac I'm going to talk about you just a little tiny bit. Growing up, there were certain things that I would do and say, and then I would catch him doing those things or saying those things. And I'm like, I didn't teach him that. I didn't sit him down and say, okay, here, when you, I, I want you to say, I'm going to show you a little habit that I have. Um, when I'm thinking really hard, I put my shirt over my chin when I'm thinking really hard. And there was a time when he did that. I don't know if you do you still do that? You see, he still does it. It's and it's not like I don't know why. Like I don't have a reason for it. Somehow it helps my brain process if my shirt is over my chin. I don't know why. But then he picked it up. It was just a modeling thing. And so, you know, at, in our spirituality and how we follow Jesus, um, your young people see what you do. And so having the humility as we're talking about the humble king, who is Jesus Christ, having the humility to be able to put your needs and wants aside and instead embrace those of, our, of your young people, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I just, kudos to, to everybody. Um, we're finishing out our humble king series. We're going to be jumping back into the gospel of John starting next week. Um, we're doing this three-year journey of going through verse by verse the entirety of the Gospel of John. And I, I love how we're doing this. Um, 
I'm going to confess that it was actually the brainchild of Mr. Stahl here, Mr. Ryan. Um, he came up with the idea, and then I said that I loved it, and so we kind of scheduled it that way. Um, but I, I love the fact that we are going verse by verse through the entirety of the Gospel of John. And I, to be honest, um, from a, a teaching, preaching standpoint, it is so much better for me just going verse by verse through the Bible, chapter by chapter, where it all flows together than like just doing like, okay, a topic. And topics are good, and they're good to like learn specific things and address things or like hit a specific point of theology. But for me, from a, a preaching standpoint, I love just going through the Bible consecutively, verse by verse, scripture by scripture. I just love it. So I'm excited to be jumping back into that next week. So just a little kind of a, a preview of where we're going next week. The humble king of heaven. It's this weird dichotomy, right? Humility and power existing together. Jesus comes to us as virtually nothing and out of mostly nowhere. His family, and even as he got older, they're like, wait, you mean that guy from Galilee? Galilee's nothing. No king, queen, president, prime minister, or celebrity has ever been able to leave the kind of mark on the world that this small infant, born homeless in the land of Palestine, left on the world. There's this paradox, this dichotomy of a humble king. Humility and power coexisting in the same person, Christ Jesus the Lord. Humility coupled with power is just not something we're familiar with much anymore. Our society today doesn't put those two things together. Yet it's a primary principle of the kingdom of God. Let's read Philippians. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and in under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've been talking about this for this, this month of how Jesus made himself vulnerable. How God, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, Emmanuel, God who is with us, the I am, the one who is above everything and all, humbled himself, becoming even obedient to death, death on a cross. And yet we know that he didn't stay there, right? He overcame. He conquered death. It wasn't the end. It was actually just the beginning. One can't read the Christmas story without realizing just how weak and vulnerable God's great gift to the world actually is. Kings, mighty leaders who hold military power and control of the masses, economic purse strings, all of them came after this little baby. We, we learned about King Herod, right? And how he chased him down. And he was like killing babies all over the place. Can you... Can you imagine, like, what kind of a community that would be to live in where your ruler was 
killing these babies? I can't imagine that. And that's what King Herod was doing. He was only after one, but he kind of took the shotgun approach and just went after a bunch of them, hoping to get Jesus. And what could Jesus do, right? His little soft, pudgy frame. I love little babies. I actually saw this little picture. It was, uh, I think it was on on Facebook somewhere talking about like their Christmas body, and that's kind of how I'm feeling this week. I've eaten way too many cookies in the last two weeks. Um, but it's this picture of this pudgy little baby. And like just seeing how how fragile and how vulnerable a little baby is. His mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, they were on the run. They were vulnerable and helpless too. And what could they do against the might of King Herod? And he had the backing of the Romans behind him. One of the greatest militaristic forces ever known on earth had Herod's back. What what could this young couple do other than run? They had to run, right? They had to run. They had to try to protect Jesus. They had to protect their child from King Herod who was seeking his life. For defending himself, a baby can only smile and gurgle, right? Is he going to burp at them? Like, what would he be able to do to stop them from harming him? The infant Christ, from everything we read in Scripture, was no exception to this. He was just as vulnerable as any other baby. In coming to us this way, God showed us that he loves weakness. Have you ever been in a place where you lost power? Or you lost control? Or you lost the ability to support your own life? I talked a little bit last week about when I had a major surgery and I could only lay in bed. And there was nothing I could do to take care of myself. I couldn't get up and get food. I couldn't get up and go to the bathroom. I couldn't get up and get a drink of water. There was nothing I could do but lay there and have someone else take care of me. I lost control. I lost power. I lost my ability to take care of myself. Jesus, when he came as a baby, willingly put himself in that same place. How how insane is that? How incredible is that? Last week we, you know, we talked about love, about the humble king of love, and how only love could drive someone to do something like that. And only God's love for us drove him to do something like that. So if you've ever had any of these happen, I want you to take heart. God loves weakness, and he has you right where he wants you. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the helpless, because he knows what it's like to be helpless. Blessed are the forgotten. He knows what it's like to be forgotten. Blessed are those who can't lift their hand to their mouth who are too ashamed to answer the phone, or who can't get a new job, or fill in your blank here. Where have you been weak? Where have you been humbled? Where have you been in a place where you feel broken, where you feel lost? Jesus experienced all of those things too. He gets it. He understands. He knows 
Desperation is a doorway for this king of the helpless. I've always personally, as anybody who's spent any time here knows, been drawn to C.S. Lewis. He, I'm just a fan. I'm a fanboy. Some people like the Beebs. Some people are fan of Brendan Urie. Some people are fans of Russell Wilson. Some people, you know, we, I could go on and on. I, I've always loved C.S. Lewis. He's like, one, after Jesus, he's one of the first dudes I want to go hang out with when I get to heaven. Like, I, me and Clive, we're going to share a pipe or something. I don't know. That's, he's always seemed like smoking a pipe. Um, I just, I love him. Uh, I just, his brain, I, lo- I love his brain. But he suffered a lot of loss. He lost his mother at an early age. He's, his dad emotionally abandoned him in every way. He suffered from respiratory illnesses as a teenager. He fought and was significantly wounded in World War I. He had to bury his wife named Joy, who he loved so much. And after he buried his wife, he wrote this book called The Problem of Pain. And it's an incredible book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read this book that Lewis wrote called The Problem of Pain. Uh, Out of this book, here's one of his most famous lines that he's known for. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There are few things that drive us to God like pain. There are few things that drive us to God like heartache. You've heard the phrase, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Because when the pressure's on, when stuff is ugly, when things are hurting, all we can do is say, Jesus, help. Help help me, God. I I can't fix this. I can't, there's nothing I can do to make this better. I need you. And Lewis got that. He understood that really well because he experienced it over and over in his own life. So looking forward, the 20s are coming back. Isn't that crazy? It's the 20s again. Like, all, all of you who have been practicing jazz and jazz band and stuff, hey, you're on. It's your time. Cormac, you play trumpet. That was a lead instrument. <laughs> um, so break out your, feather, your fedoras and feathered boas. They're back. So looking forward at this new year, how can we model this humility of Jesus in our own lives? How can we become people who value others more than ourselves in this coming year. It's a year for humility, a year looking ahead at the interests of others above our own. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
This is so hard, right? Like, I was thinking about this a little bit. Like, when I'm thirsty, I get up and get a drink. If I'm hungry, I get food. If, you know, like, I, I take care, if I need to go to the bathroom, I go and take care of that. Like, I, I do things to take care of myself, right? And my own interests. And we're usually, most of us, we're pretty good at this, right? Like, we take care of ourselves, at least to an extent. But when we extend that to starting to push others down so that we can be raised up, when we start, like, maybe I screw up at work somehow. And I don't want to take the heat for it. And so I make it look like one of my coworkers did it. So that I don't have to deal with the consequences of my mistake. That would probably be doing something out of selfish ambition, right? Or in the book of James. I don't know if you guys remember. We went like through the whole book of James. The book of James talks a lot about employers. And it talks about employers treating their employees well. And it talks about the Christian work ethic. It talks about how you should be working unto God. And as an employer, you should be an employer who's working unto God and taking care of those who work under you. And how it shouldn't be about you just getting yours and having that be enough, but rather having this Christian work ethic of raise, of all boats rise, right, together. This community, this idea of community. Even if you're the one who's in charge of having an interest of those who work for you, right? That's a, that's a solid ethic. The, actually, the, like our country, our nation, the United States, was based largely on this Quaker work ethic to a large extent. And part of that was this ethic from the book of James. It started out that way. Um, you know, things have shifted somewhat. Um, but that's how we, we began, was with that concept of we, we take care of, you know. And, like, workplaces used to be families, right? And, like, they would take time off, like, during Christmas time. A lot of companies, big factories. I remember I was doing a little bit of research on, like, Ford Motor Company when it first started. They would, like, take the week off with pay, and take care of all their employees and also have like this big Ford had this big event where like every single employee got bonuses from the janitors to the managers. Like they all got a bonus and like he just took care of them. Um, when we were in Ireland a few years ago, um, Guinness, the guy, you know, you might have heard of the beer, um, that company, he took care of his employees. He even had like housing on site. And they had like company stores that were less, where items cost less than they did out in Dublin in the greater community. And he like made sure everyone had health care before anybody did. Like they had doctors on site. So like you could like, if you got injured at work, you, they took you over a couple houses and there was a doctor in a full medical facility on site at the Guinness factory. He had this, he was Quaker as well, and had this concept of caring for his community, which were his workers. Um, and so this idea of doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather than in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
I feel like that's something that we have to recapture, uh, you know, both as a society, as believers, as followers of Jesus. This is something that we have to recapture of how can I put others' interests above my own? How can I push down my own needs and wants and desires and instead care for others? It's hard. It's really difficult. But it's biblical. It's what Scripture tells us to do. So what are you going to do with that? I mean, a lot of times we're like, well, the Bible says that I should do X, Y, or Z, so I should do it. And we, like, choose our favorite things, you know, things that are easier than others. Um, Some of them, like this, have to do with, like, killing parts of ourselves. They have to do with sacrifice. Kind of an ugly word sometimes. We don't like to hear about sacrifice. We don't like to hear about having to give up our time, money, energy, resources, um, ability for the needs of others or to care for each other. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. And so if we are Christian, which means Christ-like, so if we are followers of Jesus, then we need to do what Jesus did, which is that. And I, like... Here's your New Year's message. It's a little bit of a challenge, right? I think God's challenging us to be different than the world, to be salt and light. Let's continue on. If we have set our sights on getting our own way and subtly even sometimes using others to elevate our own name and reputation then this selfish ambition is at work. Um, If you've ever gone on any kind of social media, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you can see this happening all the time. It's this subtle diminishing of you so that I might raise myself up. Or it's the subtle diminishing of this group of people so that my group of people might ascend. Or it's, you know, it's these little... It's these little subtle things or like little snipey comments or little sarcastic memes or, you know, there's all these different things, right? How many people, other people are sick of the woman and the cat? Has anybody, anybody else seen the woman? Yeah, it's for anybody who's on social media, like this, this woman and this cat thing. I'm like so sick of it. Like make it go away. Um, but it's like, it's, it's constantly, it's consistently sarcastic, right? And I will admit, I am a bit of a lover of sarcasm. Um, when I was a young man in my 20s, I actually had to have my, my youth pastor, Cherie's nodding her head because she remembers me. She's known me that long. Um, like, I, my youth pastor, Reagan, had to, like, train it out of me because, like, I was one of those people that I, like, I didn't just speak sarcasm. I could have taught a master's course on sarcasm. Like, I was really good at it. I... I remember like making someone actually cry once because I was that sarcastic to them. I was that cutting, um, which is not good and not healthy and not Christ-like. Like, let's be honest. Now, Jesus was sarcastic from time to time. When he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, that was sarcasm. 
Paul was sarcastic a lot. Um, so, you know, maybe it has its place from time to time. However, when it's used in a selfish way and to demean others and to elevate myself over you rather than sarcasm as a prophetic correction, if I could, um, <laughs> uh, it's a different thing because it's, it's to elevate myself. It's to put myself above you. So the selfish ambition. To say yes to one thing is generally to say no to something else. To say yes to a new thing, we have to say no to an old thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, some of you know, I decided to lose weight. And so I had to say yes to eating lots of bacon, which did not hurt me. I happen to love bacon a lot. Some of you are, are shaking your heads no because bacon has a lot of fat in it. It's beautiful, glorious fat that makes me happy and satisfies me. But I did, so I did this keto thing for a couple of years and I lost like 80 pounds. Um, but that meant saying no to sugar. That meant saying no to carbs for the most part. That meant saying no to my favorite salted caramel latte from Starbucks that like all by itself is about like a thousand calories or half of my supposed daily intake. Like it's insane. Like how much those sugary drinks like, and you like, I never realized it, but I was having to say no because I was pre-diabetic. My blood pressure was way too high. The doctor wanted to give me like four different kinds of medications to deal with the fact that I really love sugar. And I really love pasta and other things. Like I do. I, those of you who know me, I love to bake. Um, baked goods have carbs and sugar in them. It's just kind of part of it. And it's part of why I love them because they make me happy. And they're like, you know, a good cookie's a warm hug. In baked form. It just is. Um, but I had to say no to something. And say yes instead to some new things. In Galatians 3.27 it says we have to put on Christ. To be able to put on Christ, there's some things we have to remove. Jesus and selfish ambition... Do not coexist well together. Not if you're actually listening to him. Jesus and your own self-interest being primary in your life cannot coexist. Jesus and selfishness don't coexist. Jesus and rage do not coexist very well. There's a lot of things that Jesus just doesn't like to hang out with. See, God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. God is good. And he doesn't like hanging out with things that are not holy, that are not righteous, that are not just, that are not good, because they're in direct opposition to his very nature, God. And so we have to make choices. Are we going to put on Christ? And if you're going to put on Christ, are you able to take off some things that don't belong with Jesus? It shouldn't be part of his crew. 
There was this, um, I remember reading this quote, I think it was from Gandhi, of all people. But um, he said something to the effect of, I very much like your Christ. I don't so much like those people who follow him. Because many times we have things in us or that we are proponents of or that we identify with that just aren't very Jesus-like. They're just not a lot like Jesus is. And we want to be more like Jesus. And so sometimes that means setting aside things that we would rather. I, I would rather, like, be able to rage at people sometimes. There is a, there is a visceral satisfaction in really going at somebody and telling them exactly how they're wrong for me. It's something that I've had to, like, wrestle with most of my life. And, like, I remember being a young man, and, like, I studied, I studied Mormonism for, like, a year. Like, in depth. I read all of the books. I read The Poet of Great Price. I read the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. I read the Book of Mormon. I read all the things. The purpose of it wasn't so that I could love them better. It was so that I could make them see how many, all the ways that they're wrong and fight with them better and argue with them. And that was that was my intent as a young 20-year-old man. I thought that's how I would help them is by arguing them into the kingdom somehow. It was not smart. Um I didn't it didn't work. It was stupid. I didn't know any better. Like I didn't. I, you know, in my, I don't even know if my heart was good. Like I think I just wanted to win arguments honestly, which is why I did all that studying so I could win arguments. I'm going to tell you a real quick story. I was up, we were doing this fundraiser for our youth group. It was up at Indian John Hill where you give away coffee and people give you money. We were going to go on a mission trip. I was leading a mission trip over to England. Um, and so we had to raise this money. And like I said, I was 20 years old. And there were a group of us there. And there was this woman um, off with this little baby. And as we're sitting there just doing coffee, she's there for a while. It's, it's like midsummer. Um, and I felt like God told me I needed to go over there and tell her that he loved her and that he was for her and that he was good. And I was like, no, no, thanks, God. I, I, I'm an introvert by nature. Um, I struggle with meeting new people a lot of times. And, like, going up to a stranger and telling them that Jesus loves them was just not in my, like, something that I wanted to do. It was not in my agenda. But I felt like God telling me this. And so I told God no, which I don't recommend, but I did. I told God no. And so, like, 15, 20 minutes pass, and she's still there. And this whole time, the Holy Spirit's like, you need to go tell her that I love her. And I'm like, God, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, no, you need to tell her that I love her. She needs to know that I care about her, that I'm concerned for her, that I love her. And I said, God, no. An hour passes. She's still there. Like, she's got this little baby in her lap. She's got this other little kid that's just there playing. 
they're just sitting there. Like after an hour, I finally kind of get this idea in my head that until I go and do something about this, she's not leaving. Like I, she could probably spend the night there. God's going to keep her there until I do what I'm supposed to do. And so she's still there. And so finally I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go tell her. So I walk over there, and I was like, <laughs> I started off with, I'm sorry if this is really weird. Because <laughs> I felt really weird. Like, and it is really weird, okay? I'm like, I'm sorry if this is really weird. But I felt like God wanted me to tell you that he loves you. And she starts bawling, like tears streaming down her face. Again, 20-year-old guy, pretty self-righteous, pretty black and white. I know what I know. She starts bawling. And so then I'm like, okay, God, what do I do with a woman who's probably like 20 years older than me who's sitting here crying? And like, you told me to tell her I love her. I did it. Can I bail? Like I'm starting having this internal dialogue with God. I'm like, I'm, I did the thing. Okay, now I can leave, right? And she's just crying. And um, once she kind of composes herself, it's about five minutes, and I just, I kind of sat there, and for whatever reason, I put my hand on the, the baby that she was holding. Well, it wasn't really a baby. It was more like a toddler, but it was pretty non This child was pretty non-responsive. So I just kind of put my hand on the child because I felt like I was supposed to start praying for her. Um, and she says, how can I believe God loves me when he gives me a child like this? And then she, like, lifted the baby's shirt, and it had a feeding tube. And the baby was pretty non-responsive. I mean, and not a baby, more, you know, like one to two, something like that. I was 20. I wasn't really good at gauging the age of kids. Um, and she was, like, she was heartbroken because she had this child that was so sick and, and damaged. Um, and then she, she told me that she was um, part of the Mormon church and um, that she had um, been told by one of her elders that this child was a punishment because of some sin that she had in her life. And so what does she do with that? You know, how can God love me? Because he gave me this child. So how can, God, how can I believe that God loves me? Um, and so I, I didn't pull out all of my Mormon attack sound bites. I didn't pull out all of my things that I had studied for a year of how she was wrong and how her theology was wrong and how uh, the you know their church was horrible and you know all these things that I had in my head as a 20-year-old. I just said, well, God told me, a complete stranger, some young guy, to come over here and tell you that he loves you, so he must. And whatever you heard from your church is wrong. Because he sent me to you. Like, I'm a complete stranger. And I was like, and I don't do this. This is not like, this is not my modus operandi. I, this is not something that, that Dusty does. And so in talking to her, I found out that her car had broken down about a mile down. And she couldn't go anywhere. And she didn't have anybody to call they were moving to the Tri-Cities from Roslyn, so they, she was on her way there, and, like, she was stuck. She had nowhere to go. And so I grabbed my friend Richard. He's this big, tall guy. He's an engineer. He actually works for um, 
Blue Origin now building spaceships for Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon. Like, so he's a machinist. Like, he knows machines. Um, and so we went down there to her car, and he opened it up and looked at the things. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know anything. I can play a cassette. That was a cassette back in the day. I can play a cassette. That's all I, like, Richard pops it open. He's like, I don't see anything wrong. He's like, why don't you try turning it over? I turn the car over, and the t car starts right up. There's, like, nothing. He's like, well, maybe it got vapor locked, whatever that means. I'm clueless. I don't know. Maybe it got vapor locked coming up the hill or something or something. I don't remember. This was a long time ago now, almost 30 years. But he's like, you know, maybe this mechanical thing happened to it. I'm like, I don't know. All I know is she said that her car stopped and it wouldn't start again. And we got in and it started right up. And so we got the car back there. He checked it over again. He said, everything looks good. He tightened a few things. Um, and we collectively, the group of us who were there collecting money for our mission trip, felt like we were supposed to give her the money we had collected for that day. And so we gave her like $400 um, and just said, you know, God told us to do this. He wanted to bless you. We gave her some sandwiches because it's a 24-hour thing, giving away the coffee. And so we made her some sandwiches and gave her some of our food and, the, and gave her the money, and, and we sent them on their way. And that was it. I don't have any miraculous, you know, and now the rest of the story kind of a thing. I don't know what happened. I don't know what God did with her. I don't know what God did with her kids. I don't know anything. But I know I did what God told me to do. And that as a group, we put away our selfish ambition. We were raising that money to do a thing we wanted to do. And it's a good thing. I mean, going on a mission trip is a good thing. And, you know, it was something that we felt God, and by the way, God provided all the money we needed for our mission trip. We didn't miss that $400. Um, God still showed up, and we were taken care of, and, and, you know. But it would have been easy to be selfish and not put myself out there. It would have been easy to be selfish and say, you know what, I just need to take care of me and not go talk to her. It would have been easy for us as a group to be selfish and say, we're not collecting this money for some random woman who showed up at our doorstep. We're collecting money for this trip, and this is the purpose, and this is what we're doing, and, you know, and staying so focused on that. But instead, what we did, these group of young men, was we, we listened to God, and I have to believe that God did something with it. But again, I don't know. And sometimes God's going to ask you to do things or he's going to um, make requests of you or he's going to give you a guidance and a direction and something to do, and you're never going to see the result of it. And you're never going to know how it ends up. And, you know, you just want to, maybe when we get to heaven. I don't know. Um, but I, know, I do know in that moment that we put on Christ. And we took off some other things that might have gotten in the way. Um, and I can give you plenty of examples where we didn't do that. And that I didn't do that. For they are many. There is a multitude of me being selfish. And there is a multitude of things of me looking after my own self-interests. But when we're able to look beyond ourselves 
and we're able to care for others, the Holy Spirit steps in and does miraculous things. This whole thing that happened was a miracle to me. Like the fact that she literally couldn't leave until I did what I was supposed to do, to me was like something out of the Old Testament. You know, it was like, well, no, I'm just going to hold the sun in the sky until, you know, this battle is won, or these walls are going to fall inward, or, you know, there's a, you know, the fire is going to come from heaven and consume an altar, or, you know, it wasn't that dramatic, but it was to me. It was to me that she, like, literally could not leave until I did what I was supposed to do. And then when I did what I was supposed to do, she could go on her way, and she felt blessed, and she felt loved by God. That much I know. Continuing on. We can't be self-absorbed and embrace weakness at the same time. So I want to just take 30 seconds. I'd like for each one of us to just consider one area of your life where you can put someone else ahead of yourself, helping them succeed. And by doing this, you're putting off that selfish ambition so that you can put on Christ's humility. So I'm just going to take a 30-second moment of silence here. I want you to consider, think of one area, just one thing, where you can put someone else ahead of yourself. Holy Spirit, speak to us. So I'd like you to just hold on to that going into this year. Hold on to that. And think about what that place is that God's asking you to do. What that thing is. This coming year, I'd like to challenge you to trust. To believe. Humble yourself. And do it all before Jesus, the King of Heaven, who loves you and holds your future in His hands. Just believe. Just trust. Simple words that take so much more work and mean so much more than that simple word might look like. I want to pray. Just right where you are this morning, if you have a need, if you're feeling hopeless or restless, I want to invite the Prince of Peace to surround you and enfold you this morning. As I mentioned before, a lot of us suffer from weakness. We have areas in our life that are just out of our control. That we just can't, we can't fix it. But God can. In Jesus Christ, we can have hope for situations and places and people that are seemingly hopeless. So I'm going to pray. Prince of Peace, 
Almighty God, Everlasting Father. Lord, I know you're in the room this morning. Jesus, we sense your presence. God, for those of us who have areas in our life where we're feeling hopeless and helpless, Lord, where things seem out of control, God, where there's just, we look at it and we can't figure out a way to fix it. That we can't fix it. Lord, teach us how to rely on you. Jesus, drive us to your cross. Lord, direct us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you speak to us? Would you guide us? Would you direct us? Would you give us fresh vision of how to be your people? Lord, we confess that we want you to be our God. Lord, we proclaim that you are good. Lord, we proclaim that you love us. Lord, we proclaim that you, God, that you, Jesus, are victorious, even victorious over death and pain and heartache, financial trouble, health, mental illness, spiritual weakness. Lord, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil, for you are with us. Lord, would you remind us of your presence? Jesus, would you remind us that you are with us? Jesus, would you bury deep in our heart the scripture that says you will never leave us and you will never forsake us, that neither angel nor demon nor man can separate us from you, from the love of God. Lord, help us feel safe in you. Show us how to feel safe in you, Jesus. Lord, as we go into this new year, God, make us your people. Make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Transform us, God. Make us like you. Make us holy, God. Make us a people of justice, Jesus. Show us how to forgive, God. Lord, may you show us how to humble ourselves and put others' interests above our own. Lord, would you, would you kill selfishness and narcissism and pride in us, God? Would you destroy those things in us, Jesus? Lord, make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Make us new, God. Make us new, Jesus. Make us new, Lord. Amen. Um, typically on family service, we try to keep it a little bit shorter, so I'm going to just end there. Um, I would really encourage you guys, if you are able to, come at 6 o'clock on Wednesday for the time of prayer. Uh, I just, I think it's going to be significant. I think there's going to, there's some healing there for you, uh, for me. Um, just some time to get face-to-face -face with God, which I don't know about you guys. I have a hard time 
making space for that sometimes in my life. Um, I don't always do very good at that. And so having some specific time blocked out and set aside to just get face-to-face with Jesus, how valuable is that? How amazing is that? Um, so I just encourage you to come. As, as you were coming in, hopefully you got a little flyer. Um, uh, this is really just, it's a time for you. It's the, their church is just trying to make some space for you to connect with your God. Um, so I just encourage you to do that. Bless you guys. Thank you. Um, we're going to just as a little thing again for next week, um, we are going to be going into John. The Christmas stuff is going to come down. So next Sunday, if you guys, if there's a few of you guys available to help us get it all back upstairs, that would be awesome. So anyway, thank you guys. Bless you. Have a great week. Uh, and go Hawks. Welcome back, Lynch. For those of us who are of that fandom, Shauna, I'm sorry. But I, I